Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. I heard fish before I went and saw them. I, I think one of the first tapes that I remember was like the Arrowhead Ranch show or Amy's Farm. And I remember the enjoyment of the quirkiness and funness of the music and the stories and banter. But then I also have a real genuine memory of listening to it with my friends in college and the connectivity that we had around it of talking to other people about this music and connecting and sharing and hanging out, listening to music. And so it was a genuine appreciation for the art itself and the songs and the stories that they were telling, but also the fact that it brought us together as human beings. You remember Brad Sands. Star of Todd Phillips' breakthrough film, Bittersweet Motel. Hi, my name is Brad Sands. <laughs> Former road manager of the band Fish and manager of Primus and Ween. Brad followed Fish on the road before he went on the road with Fish. Well, what happened was this guy, his name was Greg, that was a friend of mine. He had gone to a rainbow gathering in Vermont, came home, changed his name to Dreamer. But he brought back Lawn Boy with him, you know, and I had an apartment and we would play this album over and over and we were like, 
wow, what? A, this is fucking weird. Like, you know, Vishman's in the green thing, you know? Like, And I remember looking at these guys, and I remember it said we thank, they thanked their parents, and I thought, what do their parents think of these guys? Look at these clowns. You know, like, like, you know, like, but so then we went to the bayou. Oh, no, Arrowhead Ranch was first. Then we went to the bayou. Went to those three. And I remember I'll get on the way into Arrowhead Ranch. There were these flyers for, like, come to Amy's farm, our free show, blah, blah, blah. And we were like, who's going to drive to Maine to see these guys? I mean, come on. You know, here it is, like, 10 days later. On our way to Maine. <laughs> you know, like... Giant rocks that turn into iguanas, fans that transform into wolves, a drummer in a donut dress performing a vacuum solo, venues that shapeshift into spaceships, strangers doing the strangest of things, friends doing even stranger things, high fives with police officers on the way out of the arena. This isn't your typical rock concert. This isn't your typical rock band. But you probably know that already because, in terms of fan base, there's nothing about fish fans that could be called ordinary. On this season of Undermine, we're exploring the fish community as it interfaces with the band and their music before, during, after, and in between shows. I'm lyricist Tom Marshall, and I'll be your guide as we navigate through the gated fish community. In the last episode, we discovered how fish fans first found fish during their phenomenal growth spurt in the early and mid-90s, and also about the conditions that led to the band and their fans together, creating and then nurturing a unique community, unparalleled in all of rock and roll. Fish's rise was concurrent with the rise of the internet and began during a time when the only way to hear live recordings was by finding someone who possessed homemade cassette tapes, then getting them to agree to make a copy for you, a stranger, and driving to their local post office to mail it off to you. These were deals known as blanks and postage. Apart from the blank tape and the postage required, there was no money involved. In fact, there was nothing in it for the folks who offered to do this except the satisfaction of hooking someone up with music that just might change or at least enrich their life. That kind of selfless interaction and connective network established a genuine bond among fans, like we're all in it together. If you were there and you knew the songs, it's because someone hooked you up with the tapes, and in turn, you hooked up others. That's just the way it worked. It was the way it had to. There was no such thing as streaming, and you were lucky if your phone didn't have a coil tethering it to the wall. Whatever you had in your pocket, it sure wasn't a phone. A beeper, maybe. I don't need to know. So last week we checked in with the early adopters who first got on the bus, just as it was beginning to roll. Today we're going to push it into third, climb that hill, stay on your feet, and hit the road with fish. Let's go on tour. Let's get the show on. For the past 38 years, a community has grown around the band. Along the way, we've collected memories that we can't quite remember and stories that we're not always at liberty to tell. We discovered America in between arenas, hotels, and parking lots. And for many, 
we discovered much about ourselves along the way. These might not be the stories we'll tell the grandkids, but they are stories we'll tell the person in the seat next to us at some show down the way as we anxiously wait for the band to take the stage. But first, we must anxiously wait for this episode to continue. We will be right back. Fish experience means to me, first off, family. I've really become attached to not just the band in their music, but all the souls that surround the scene. Everyone is incredible. I've met some of my bestest friends in the entire world through Fish. That's the voice of digital artist Leo Aria. And Leo's take is a popular one. Play it, Leo. Let's hear from fan and online commentator Chris Glushko, a.k.a. Chop. I don't know if it wasn't for Fish. I don't know if, you know, I would have gone down the course of life that I did, met my wife. I don't know if I'd be living in in Colorado right now. So it's, you know, it, it had a major impact in pretty much every way. And Ben Greenfield, a.k.a. Guy Forget, on Twitter anyway he is, but he's probably not the original. In an unexpectedly commonplace pattern, Ben compares his fish fan identity with his Jewish identity. I grew up Jewish, and I see the fish experience as a whole as having some things in common with the experience of Judaism. In Judaism, you have your secular Jews, you have your Orthodox Jews, you have everybody in between. Um, Some people are only in it for the cultural experience, and some people believe in all the teachings and all the readings. With fish, I think it's the same thing. You know, there are some people who are there to party. There's some people there because they just want to see some old friends. And then there are other people that, you know, can name every single tweezer and exactly what the timings of everyone are. As personal as these stories are, by the way, there's also something universal about them. They're not just typical. They can be archetypal. You met your wife or husband on tour, had a life-changing epiphany, got beer spilled on you, was convinced that the venue actually was a giant ship sailing through space. Yep, we've all been there one way or another, each in our own way, each with some common ground and certainly all with the common denominator, fish. These stories could easily be from one of your tour friends, show buddies, or the person who parked next to you in the parking lot. You get out of your car, maybe crack open a beer, and offer one to your neighbor who is tailgating in the space next to you. That could be John McGar. What does it mean to me? It's everything. It's, it's an escape. It's being with friends. It's being in a place that's comfortable, yet can be unknown, but that's the excitement of it. And that's the whole experience that you are not just experiencing with yourself, but with thousands of other people who are all there for the same reasons, to see that same band and just get to that place and just to just to feel what the band is able to give us. Whether you know him or not, you know where to find Greg Carey during a show. Section 119, of course, 
Carrie is the CEO of a clothing line by that name that makes fish-inspired threads. Fish has really been about this like exercise and being present. You know, it, it, time stops, right? That's why we don't want the jams to end because time can stop, right? And you can sit with whatever you're sitting with in life. And in, in some ways it's been this, this filtering process of, of things that I haven't worked through or things that I need to work through, right? If, if the jam can let me release and I can be, I can be free, I, I know that, that I've dealt with things that, have, that need to be resolved. If there's things that are unaddressed in my life, right, they, they surface, they surface. And the music, the music helps kind of, just helps me filter through life, right? That exercise and being present, I think is just a great, you know, I'm so fortunate to have that in my life. Like I'm incredibly grateful to have found this band that has has given me so so much enjoyment, but is, has also been something that I attribute a lot of my like, you know, life philosophy to. Talk to any Fish fan long enough, and that's the recurring theme you'll hear again and again. Fans live their lives above and beyond their show-going personas by a philosophy that they formed through the Fish experience. Hold that thought. In a little bit, we'll hear from Dr. Stephanie Jenkins, a professor at Oregon State University, who teaches the philosophy of Fish. We'll check in with her later this episode. Hey, can you get it quiet enough in here? Did you want these here without a mic? Let's see if we can do that. Despite the constant desire to shush everyone around you who dares to commit the cardinal sin of talking while the band is playing, fish shows are an inherently social event. During the show, it's all about the music and all about getting to a place where you can filter everything else out because everything else just stops. But the long drives before the show, the late nights after, and even the days between are all part of the fish experience, if you're doing it right. Ask five seasoned vets if they're doing it right, or rather why they're doing it right, and you'll get 10 different answers. And they're probably all correct. Like for example, Dave Cooks. So it was like three in the morning, we left, and we drove to Acadia National Park on the coast of Maine. No, not the American Idol. Cook is a voice actor and radio consultant. We got there, at dawn and right when the park opened we were the first ones in and there was no one else there and the sun was just coming up and we got to the coast and they have these most amazing birds there he's not talking about a show day he's talking about on the road to or from they're um some kind of a finch they sound like flutes i mean just like flutes flying over you it's the most incredible thing and we were all by ourselves and we would just kind of hang out and explore. And then whenever we'd hear like the traffic, you know, the crowd starting to come before they even got to the place where we were, we'd hop in the car and go to the next one. We would enjoy that one for a while until we'd hear them start to come. Then we'd get, you know, so we never had to deal with people until we got to this one place all at the end. And we were, we were in the water and the fog was coming in and it was just, it was such a great experience. And I just, I just remember thinking like, this is one of the coolest ideas that I've ever struck upon on tour is to check out national parks when you're cruising around in these places that you you may not ever be back to or you might not have even been there had fish not decided to play in the upper corner of Maine or the you know wherever it might be the connection that we have with the band and that the band has with us it has become such an organism of itself of this like 
breathing, heartbeat. Like we all, it, it, it really just feeds off of each other. That was Don Jenkins, who works with us here in the Undermine Laboratories cooking up new episodes. Let's hear from Fish Chick, Gina Schmidt. I didn't label her that. Fish Chicks is the actual name of an online subgroup within the fish community. It's more of a loosely self-defined association than a card-carrying club. Different platforms are run by different chicks, but anybody who wants to be can be a fish chick, provided you fit the title or otherwise identify with it. They meet on social media and, apparently, at national parks in the Wild West. We were doing a photo shoot that was supposed to happen for Fish Chicks, and it, our group was the Sand Sisters, and so we all met in the White Sands, New Mexico, for a weekend. None of us had ever met before, and we just did this photo shoot, and it turned out to be one of the greatest weekends ever. It was so funny because we were all just complete strangers, and yet our love for fish, we were instantly bonded. We still talk regularly. We have a group text chat that we keep going. If we're ever in the same city, we will definitely see each other. We'll go see shows together, and so so it's so funny that one weekend, just this chance meeting, and even though the project might not have come to fruition, it just turned out to be such a wonderful experience. And just nothing says more about the community, I think, than that does, you know? The rules and definitions of the default world don't apply, right? Where I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm this person with my family, and I'm this person at my job, and I'm this person with my friends, and then I can go to this other place and be whoever I want in a lot of ways, and that the, the rules kind of come off, and there's this temporary space. Rob Corwin, who you just heard from, started Brian and Robert, a subgroup within the fish community for LGBTQ plus fans. My name is Laura Keating. My first fish show was July 24th, 1999 at Alpine Valley. The fish experience, I think, means living, being alive just living in the moment and being part of something bigger than myself. I'm probably gonna start crying, but uh, you know, before I, I fell in love with fish when I was a teenager, when I got sick with this just awful, rare illness, you know, it went, I went from um, 100 miles an hour to zero. Um, so I spent a lot of time in bed listening to fish and it kind of became the thing that my husband and I um, could look forward to. You know, we just kept getting bad news after bad news after hospital stay. Me missing so many holidays because I'd be in the hospital with, and my, you know, my kids were really small and it was hard. But with my husband being a teacher, it fish works out perfect. So it, t it takes a lot, but um, he'd pack us up, load up all my medications, all of, whatever I needed medically, um, and then we'd make it to a show. And it was just a victory. Part of it for me is I almost died twice. I've had two open heart surgeries, artificial like heart valve and a bunch of stuff. And like I spent hours recovering, just listening to fish. So it's kind of like good times, bad times. That was Michael Lazaro again, whom we heard from last week. Something happens to us when we realize our time is limited. We want to spend time and money doing the things that brings us joy and happiness. For many of us, that happy place is somewhere out there in America, on the way to the next fish show. 
25 years ago, when the median age of the fan base was exactly 25 years younger than it is now, the average fan's fish tour looked remarkably different than it does now. Most tour heads were either college students on summer break or recent graduates. That meant either their parents financed tour or they saved up money from summer jobs or they sold food or crafts in the parking lot. Undermine commentator Drew Hitz recalls, It used to cost about $50 per show. That was the whole cost. That was the ticket. That was my portion of the gas. That was my portion of either the hotel room or the campsite. And then that was like some eating out money was like $50. And there were some off days. But yeah, when I saw 17 shows, I mean, now that's like, that's over $1,500 worth of tickets. And that's like no gas. That's no lodging. That's no nothing. Meet fish fan Jenny Chadbourne. I think my favorite tour memory is really a combination of these things that happen that you could never plan for. Like, you know you're going to have a day off and that you have 16 hours you have to drive. But it's really like not until you're in the car with the people or figuring out your flight route, you figure out what you're going to do with that time off. Sometimes it's as simple as things like finding a dog park and like the stories that came from those memories are fantastic. Or, you know, you decide to go shopping at some mall because there's a couple things you need. You end up deciding to go see a movie because you've gotten to the town where the show's going to be the next night and you run into like 30 people at the movie and you didn't even know you all were going to end up doing that together. That's the thing that happens on tour that makes it my favorite. It's like the moments in between where something like unforeseeably magical takes place and it's like a coincidence or some sort of weird algebra playing out with the equation of you and your friends and the music and being in all the places at the same time and getting to all the places in that same time frame and then just the endless possibilities that happen in that. It's just fascinating and it's amazing. But while the road is winding and filled with magic, here's a cautionary tale, one from Trey Anastasio, as told by our head writer, Benji Eisen. Uh, in 2015, for the Fairy Ridley Well rehearsals, the very first one, before a note was even played, I was there with Bill Kreutzmann, the drummer from The Dreadful Dead, who I was managing, and uh, Trey Anastasio, and we were talking about Red Rocks. In Trey's words, as he looked at Bill, he said, you know, the only reason I even heard about Red Rocks was, and he told this story about when he was younger, I think probably in high school, he piled into a car, in my mind it was a Volkswagen, but whatever, in New Jersey with a bunch of his friends, and they drove to Morrison, Colorado, uh, to see the Grateful Dead. And so during the show, he was completely torn because on the one hand, he was totally enamored by the notes that Jerry Garcia was playing, and just totally in that moment, and at the same time, completely terrified for his life because the feature, the main feature about Red Rocks is that there are these rocks that rise up way over the audience, way over the musicians behind the stage. They are the backdrop and they also kind of jet out over the audience and they're absolutely majestic, maybe a little menacing. And so Trey was saying the rocks kind of turned into, transformed into these creatures, these uh, menacing creatures like lizards and iguanas and he was terrified for the band's life, for Jerry's life, for his own life. 
And of course, I had to laugh because the first time that I went to Red Rocks was in 1996 to see Four Nights the Fish, and I think I had a very similar experience, as probably did a lot of other people that night or at any number of nights there. And it really kind of shows that there's a continuum between the band and the audience and our shared experiences. We might not have had the same experiences all at the same time, and the specifics are going to always be different. But we now have a library of shared experiences that we draw upon and that kind of unifies us. And every single show, we just create more of them. And suddenly he looks up and he sees this giant iguana looking down at him. At which point their tempers both start to flare and they realize that there's going to be a horrible fight here between the iguana. And so the iguana starts stepping forward. So like... Don Jenkins can relate. So, <laughs> so I think... Yeah, we had our dog with us, of course, because, I mean, that's what you did in the 90s, right? You know, bring your dog along with you. And it's our dog, Caspian. And so we're like, we're going to be right in, no problem, right? We're hiking, go up one hill, we go down one hill, and nope, we're not there yet. And we're starting to realize we're like, well, like, the sun's starting to go down. We're up one thing, and I kid you not, there was, like, just random hippies, like, all of it. Like, you just, like, bounce up from behind a rock, like, have you seen the menu? Nope, I haven't eaten so at one point in time, I mean, things started to really kick in, right? We were literally on the red rocks, scaling them, crying, laughing. Just, I mean, hysterically, because we were so, we were in there for two and a half hours and it was getting dark. And so we could kind of hear the music start. We're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Like, we can't, like, we're on the red rocks outside. And we finally, you know, we clamber down. And I kid you not, we come up. And we could see the parking lot finally. And they're playing, you'll never gather this maze. You'll never gather this maze. You'll never gather this maze. And we're like, oh my goodness. My entire wedding party was all people I, not all people I met through Fish, but people who I have like deeply bonded with by going to shows over the years. And so it, it's, this is when it starts sounding like a cult, but they are literally interwoven into every single aspect of my life. And it's, it's a hard thing to put into words. Although if you know what I mean, then you've been nodding along the entire time I've been talking about this. And if you don't, you probably would need me to keep elaborating and you still wouldn't quite get it. That voice still belongs to Drew Hitz. Drew is a sitting member of the Mockingbird Foundation's board of directors and is also a renowned tubist. That might make him the fish community's first tubist. One thing that we have started doing uh, with the Mockingbird Foundation is uh, I'm on the grant-making committee, and I am in charge of tour grants. And tour grants are that every time that fish has a stop on a tour that we go ahead and find a school that is near the venue and we will give them a completely unsolicited grant, which is usually like $1,000 or $1,500, where we literally just call and say, who do we make the check out to? And then we send them money, which is really wonderful. Drew plays tuba around the world and tours with fish around America whenever given the chance. 
I'm always preaching that that there are two punctuation marks you can play any note or any phrase with. One is a question mark and the other is an exclamation point. A question might sound like this. And an exclamation like this. I flew down to Arizona from Chicago with the explicit uh, intention to take my mentor, Sam Palafian, to a fish show. This guy is in the orchestra on Pink Floyd's The Wall. He played with Lionel Hampton. He toured with the Metropolitan Opera, the Boston Symphony. He was the founding member of the Empire Brass, which is the greatest qu- brass quintet ever. He had like a full page New York Times obituary when he passed away two years ago, which for a tuba player, completely unheard of. Climbed to the highest heights of rock classical jazz and he was this crazy entrepreneur so i got tickets to that 12994 and they opened with llama sam was standing there like just kind of like completely still you know i'm like i'm rocking out but i'm why i keep watching him because i just want to see him his reaction and uh in that llama fishman rips off in the middle of trey's uh, solo which starts out kind of like standard Llama 94, so it sounds like the solo just did like three lines of blow, but it's like really amped, and then it gets weird. Like Mark Rabot is like, you know, meeting up with Trey, 90, 94 Trey. And Fishman, when it gets weird, rips off this quarter note triplet fill. And that was the moment when Sam completely, he wasn't doing this to me, he was doing this at the band. It was involuntary, double fist pumped and screamed, fuck yeah, like as loud as he possibly could. And that was the single most validating moment of my entire life. I mean, like an absolute legend who happened to be like a second father to me. And he was like, he was all in the entire show, the whole thing. The band had Sam Palafian eating out of their hand. Drew's fish story has parts that many, if not all of us, can relate to. And yet parts that are, of course, uniquely his. And that's what makes us a community. More voices from this community and a free jetpack for everyone when we return after this. We're back, sadly minus the jetpacks. It was metaphorical. Let's introduce Beth Montori Rolls. Her story actually is a little different than any of our takes from the road because Beth is not only executive director of the Waterwheel Foundation, Fish's charitable arm, but is also general manager of Fish, Inc. In other words, this participatory but non-competitive sport we've been talking about called Fish Tour? Yeah? Well, Beth sits in the front office looking out the window at all of us. Waterwheel was created in 1997. There's a couple of different components to Waterwheel on a regular basis that I'm pushing forward. There's the touring initiative that Maddie runs. 
By Maddie, she means Maddie Beck, who also manages a band called Green Sky Bluegrass. There's a local initiative that we give money locally into our community and into the communities that the band members live in because they don't all live in Burlington, Vermont anymore. Also, the Ben and Jerry's Lake Champlain. In addition to that, we've had some other things that have popped up most recently, Tortola, and then that Tropical Storm Irene Fund that we did back in 2011. We, we're not a company that has titles, but for descriptive purposes, I'm the executive director of the Waterwell Foundation. I, have to, I would like to note, though, that I do not actually take a salary from Waterwell. I do get paid by the band to do my job, but none of it comes out of Waterwell. I have a part-time assistant in Burlington, Alice, who does a terrific job. She's one who's been bumping up our social media. I also have somebody who works for me, James, who is our poster guru because posters have become such a, an important part of how Waterwheel raises money. I've always tried to find somebody who comes in as a volunteer who kind of falls in that direction and then will really concentrate on it and keep on top of what the community is following. You know, like the, th the artists that they hold up besides ob the obvious ones, you know, the Jim Pollocks of the world, you know, and the David Welkers. The challenge, of course, for Waterwheel at this point is, I believe that there were a lot of people who were sitting in front of their computers or had their phone in their hand or nearby when they were on their couches watching dinner and a movie who donated for the first time ever to Waterwheel or who continued to support Waterwheel more than just the one donation a year that they drop off at the table. So there's a huge challenge and I haven't figured it out yet and I don't know that I will figure it out, but there's a huge challenge as to how do we get people to continue donating to the Waterwheel Foundation in the live setting? Because I know that like it's not as convenient. You have to kind of find us, you know, and if you're on the floor, we're never gonna have a table on the floor level. So if you're on the floor or the field of a venue, you're, you're gonna have to spend some time trying to come find us. But if people just are thinking about it and they're standing in line to go into the show, if they just Venmo us a small donation, we're not asking people to give us giant donations, that we'll, we're happy to accept any donation. You don't have to go to the table to donate. That money will go towards those nonprofits that we're hosting. Here's more from Michael Lazaro. It doesn't matter if you're sitting or standing, but prepare to nod in agreement, or at least recognition. I mean, if you go to a great religious experience, whether it's Jewish, Muslim, pick your religion, music is like a big part of it, whether it's actually like a canter or um, a choir or gospel. And there's something about music that is one step away from religion. I'm not here to say that there's something about fish that is you know, like God, if you believe in that, but they're related, music and religion. And when I think of the community of fish, I think it's the, the way religion should be. There's an ethical framework of do the right thing, take care of your brother and sister, you know, be a good person. And that comes out if you talk to the security guards at MSG, if you talk to people in the community, it is self-policing. You know, it is what the Superfly and Bonnaroo you know, community believes of radiate positivity. And I think for a lot of us who've gotten into it, who were disillusioned by traditional religion, but still have faith, there's something in great music and the community for us fish 
that feels like the way religion should be with tradition and beliefs and a secret language that unless you're part of you don't understand like to me what fish was doing with the secret language way back before i was even a fan right like when i was starting in college you know the stuff that went, was going on at boston and those simulcasts on the radio but there was you know stuff going on live which no one could see like the idea that you have to learn the secret language and then you're kind of indoctrinated or you get it the fact that there are normals in the world like us who speak in hidden language to show that you're a fish fan is fun and it makes no sense like does it make sense that i've been to so many shows i like i think it's like a hundred and some like i've tried to count um i should probably count 150 whatever maybe more it makes no sense but the best things in life make no sense like if we only did stuff that made sense life would be awful We hear echoes of this sentiment everywhere fish is discussed. Also, some of you may recall similar sentiments expressed by one-time fish guitarist Jeff Holdsworth in Season 1, Episode 1 of Undermine. Feel free to go back and listen, by the way, in your own time, because we have to move forward. A popular fish tour pastime is discussing and dissecting the most recent show, It's a conversation, very often a debate, that begins on the way out of the venue and continues on nonstop until curtain call at the next one. Naturally, there are as many opinions about any particular bathtub gin as there are versions of it in existence. They were phoning it in. It was the greatest of all time. It sounded like they weren't hooking up. They were cosmically connected. It went nowhere. It took me to the outer reaches of Gamehenge. Trey pulled the ripcord. Dude! It was like 18 minutes long. There was even a Facebook group called The Great Went Bathtub Gin Changed My Life. surprise there is that other fans haven't started one yet called the Murat Gin Was Better. As discussed previously on Undermine in Season 2, Episode 1, for Fish's 1.0 online community, reviews were a way of letting you know what tapes to seek out. But now that all of us can hear every note of the current tour in near real time from wherever in the universe we happen to be at the moment, Fish criticism has evolved with the times. It can still lead a noob to water from the hose, or more casual fans to discover the must-hears. It can help weed out the Saturday night specials and the standard festival fish sets. 
but it's also become a way of further interacting with the community and exercising the passion that we all have for the music. It's fish entertainment between fish engagements. I personally think that music and art criticism, you know, it can be done poorly, of course, but I think it's uh, it's a completely valid thing for anybody to do. I find it hard to believe that fans of Claude Monet equally love every single painting that he ever made completely equal. Like no preference between like the really early pencil like sketches and then like his like push into like pushing boundaries with, you know, impressionism. And then there's, and of course, if I were to ask Trey and say, Trey has every single jam that you've ever played, has it always paid out in the way that, you know, like really paid out? He would look at me like I was an ass. And he would probably say, because we've talked a bunch of times and say, you're a musician, right? And I'd say, yup. And then he'd be like, what? Of course not. Like that's, it's impossible. It's like, hey, Claude Monet, is every painting you've ever done the best painting you've ever done? Or did every one of them, this is a better example, is every one of them the best version of that painting that you possibly could have done? He's dead, so I can speak for him. Like, I'm sure that he would say, no, this one, it, it's fine, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it, but here's the problem with it, right? And he could go right in on like, on how he, it should have been moved over to the left a little more, that, you know, whatever. But once he started, he started. And so Fish takes risks all the time that don't pay out. That's why when they take risks that do, it's the same thing with like every bathtub gin while it's happening, feels like it's the greatest version that is ever. It's like Marat combined with Riverport combined with the when it's like, it's all in one, right? And then you listen to it on tape and it's good, it's great, but it's like, it's fine. You know, it's like, a, a, you know, average by definition can't be 99% of bathtub gins are not average bathtub gins. Fish criticism can be such a personal thing because on the one hand, we all feel passionately about this band or else we wouldn't be here. For some fans, critically comparing fish to fish enriches their experience and further engages them as fans. Whereas others take the equally valid approach that while some shows are naturally better than others, fish has such a high batting average that they never truly strike out. And when they walk, that's fine too. It's kind of like that joke about pizza and sex. When it's bad, it's still pretty good. But remember, the original online fish criticism by fans for fans served a larger purpose. Let's hear Chop, actual name Chris Glushko, weigh in. You know, when you were critiquing jams or critiquing shows, you know, it was really a, a valuable thing because we didn't have access to every show. Um, but, you know, what you have now is you have a band that has such a long history and you have people who just have so many different things they liked about the band back in the day um, that there's a lot more room for criticism. And there's a lot more room for saying, you know, this doesn't work for me. Where back then it was everything was still new and it was fresh and it was still, you know, going in a upward trajectory. I think the I think the criticism coming from fans is really key to the whole experience. You know, I think it forces us to keep seeking that greater that you know, that bigger show, that better show, that higher high. I think anytime you have great art, you're going to have criticism because art can't be great 
without that criticism that's level setting. Like I said, if, if you ever just said, oh my God, Trey blew my mind tonight, you just criticize, you just, you just critique the music. You said he did something tonight that was different that blew your mind. A fish celebrity who has, in action, made a strong argument for both sides of that coin is Dave Calarco, better known in fish circles as Mr. Minor. Calarco authors the enormously popular blog Mr. Minor's Fish Thoughts, which he started in 2008. During its peak, he would run back to his hotel room immediately after the show and put keystrokes to all the thoughts and emotions he just experienced, sometimes harshly critiquing setlist decisions, other times equating jams, like the Tahoe Tweezer, to life-affirming religious experiences. Maybe contrary to some people's thoughts, is that like any critique is based in like a deep love and devotion to fish and their music. It's like if we didn't, if we hadn't already experienced and like believed that fish is capable of the ultimate, critique wouldn't exist. But also, I had a change of heart around analysis and critique of fish. And it happened in uh, at Dick's in 2016. I realized I had come to a point in my fish life that critique was useless. <laughs> and that as much fun as I had with it over the years, it was totally unnecessary. And on some level, it was, I had come to a point where it became unnecessary for me. And I felt that it was a way of inserting myself into the music, into the moment where on some level, only served to like tarnish it. And hmm. so it, it, it's actually more of a philosophical thing than even just a fish-based thing. But like, basically I, I had an understanding that like, fish is only gonna play the show that they're gonna play. Whatever happens is what happens. In last week's Undermine, we detailed the rise of Fantasy Tour as it became, for years, the online hub for fish discussion via the message board. As with all things online and certainly any place that allows for anonymity, the fantasy tour boards could sometimes be full of trolling, flame wars, and fans who love to stir up trouble by overstating complaints and displeasures. In short, there are a lot of assholes out there. Sometimes you hear rumors that to gauge online sentiment, the band members have ventured onto fantasy tour, anonymously of course. Is that Mike? It says real Mike. Or is that fake Mike? Let's hear from Jason Ronk. The asshole jaded fish fans on there too. Like, man, it's like we like to, we're like a snake eating its own tail sometimes as fish fans. Because <laughs> they are just in the public spotlight. I'm just probably not the person to critique them because I just have so much joy and, and uh, appreciation that, that we're still here. You know, Trey, they're getting in their late 50s. And at that time, you know, the other bands that we love and musicians weren't alive. So just trying to enjoy the moment of them being here and. It just doesn't, for me, it just doesn't help anything. It doesn't, for me, it makes me feel bad. And that's just my personal thing. I just, I don't want to, you know, I'm more about trying to bring people up and, and pointing out their flaws and, and defects, you know, even though I mean, that might be appropriate at times to people in my own circle of life. I'm not going to partake of it with fish. You know, guys like them, they got to the, the level of musician. They, they, they do enough critiquing of themselves that they don't need my assistance.
Now would be a great time for you to meet Dr. Stephanie Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins teaches philosophy at Oregon State University in Corvallis. She's taken students on official school field trips to see fish at the Gorge and in 2019 organized the very first Fish Studies Conference, which was an actual academic conference hosted by the university. Fish scholars of all stripes attended for a weekend of panels and presentations all about fish. The institution even placed two trampolines in the common area where the school mascot, Benny Beaver, attempted his first tramps jam. Our research shows that he was the first official school mascot to ever take a crack at that choreography. Way to break the ceiling, Benny. While Benny the Beaver is still out chasing his first live yam, Dr. Jenkins spends a lot of time thinking not just about fish, not just about philosophy, but about the philosophy of fish. Why, why do we feel that we have the right to criticize the band? I think this comes with the territory with anything that you love, right? People that have um, hobbies or who love sports in whatever online discussion forums um, they're a part of, I'm sure that the same kind of deep analysis and criticism takes place. It is amusing, right, to... Uh, to spend so much energy criticizing something that you love is is, is almost contradictory. Uh, but I think overwhelmingly uh, fans of the band love fish and we are constantly in a state of awe at the sheer power of improvisation and the unending uniqueness of um, improvisation. You guys remember Andy? And I don't listen to three-minute songs. I listen to 20-minute epic jams because they're inherently not supposed to be perfect or, you know, there are some shows that are more exciting than others. Andy Bernstein. We introduced him as the editor of The Farmer's Almanac. But that was his 1.0 side hustle. In the decades since then, Andy co-created and runs Headcount, a nonpartisan voter registration organization. Headcount encourages fans to vote but doesn't tell them who to vote for, just as Andy can share favorite show moments, but he won't argue with you over whether or not your favorite Wolfman's brother is the best ever. I've still not been to a bad fish show, and I've been to like 350 of them. So I don't get that. Like, that's just like, I don't know, criticize like politics or criticize like your upbringing. Why criticize fish? Why criticize the thing you like the most? You know, but other people are analyzing the music in a much deeper way. And they're probably getting a um, through the, the higher sophistication and the more the finer lens. They're hearing the music in a deeper way than I am and, and in some way getting deeper pleasure than I am. I, I didn't get the hyper critiquing. I didn't get the negativity toward other fans. Like to me, it was like the opposite of the message I was getting from the music. I mean, the beauty of Fish is like, if the band quote fucks up, one, it's like funny and makes the show more interesting too. It shows that it, it's not a perfectly manufactured reproduction of a studio recording. It's it's improvised. It's supposed to be sloppy. So then to criticize Fish for being sloppy or whatever, I'm like, no, that's the whole idea. You know, when people talk about a show being tight, I mean, I guess that's a compliment, but I also like, like a show being loose. 
And I like that's what I like about fish and why I don't listen to pop music. Let's hear from a guy who makes a living critiquing bands, published music critic Stephen Hyden. I was aware of bouncing around the room, but, you know, they didn't go down that path of being a radio band, really, like in a real way. So I was intrigued by that. And I was acquaintances with Rob Mitchum, and I knew that he was a Fish fan. So I asked him to give me a primer, basically, on, on Fish. And he sent me this email outlining the band's career and also highlighting you know, shows that I should check out. So that was really the beginning of me digging in. With Fish and also The Grateful Dead, what that did for me, along with just getting into their music and loving what they did, is that it really revitalized my interest in music, I think. And that it made me feel the way I felt when I was 11 or 12, and I was first starting to learn about music. And every day there was a new discovery. Every day you heard Dark Side of the Moon for the first time, or you heard Led Zeppelin IV for the first time, or you heard Nevermind for the first time. And it was so exciting. With Fish and the Dead, not only are those bands worlds onto themselves, but like they really rewired my brain in terms of like, looking at bands in a different kind of way. Not looking at them just in terms of, of their discographies, but their live careers and, and digging into specific years and specific tours and specific stands. And looking at that as like a discrete period in a band's career. And when you do that, it just seems to open up so many different possibilities for discovery. It just exponentially explodes your point of view. Rob Mitchum. So I first saw Fish 25 years ago now, August 10th, 1996 at Alpine Valley. Rob is Stephen Hyden's co-host on 36 From the Vault, a podcast about the Grateful Dead's live album series, Dick's Picks. That's Dick's Picks, not to be confused with Fish Dick's. I had been listening to them for almost a year at that point before I finally got to see them. You know, reading about them online, getting tapes wherever I could. You know, people like Charlie would post these really detailed song-by-song reviews after the concert. And because you couldn't hear the tapes for months afterwards, that was all you had to like, this is what they're up to. This is what this show is like. So I could not wait to come back from that first show and write my own song-by-song review. Rob now writes essays about every fish show on its 25th anniversary on his blog. But there was a time when he started writing for Pitchfork, where he realized he was a fish out of water in music critic circles. Two of the worst things you can do if you want to be taken seriously by, like, music snobs, which is that they're a band that is not afraid to be funny and humorous, uh, which music critics and music snobs just cannot stand. It has to be serious, you know, radiohead, dark, intense, cerebral music. You cannot have songs about lizard people or secret languages or, you know, silly jokes, silly narrative, you know, storytelling in the middle of your show. And they were Prague, which Prague is like just eternally uncool. Like every documentary about the history of rock music is always like the Ramones came in and killed Keith Emerson (laughs) and ended the days of album length songs uh, in favor of one, two, three, four, two minute pop songs. So Fish 
Fish had all this baggage of like everything that you could imagine was uncool about rock music embodied in one band in the 90s. Back to his buddy, Stephen Hyden. Now, as I got into the scene, and this is also true of the Grateful Dead, you learn that there's like taste cops in the jam scene too. You know, there, there's people who are very snooty about fish and very snooty about the Grateful Dead and very vocal about what they think is good and what they think is bad. So, you know, those hierarchies of taste, they exist everywhere. But I will say that the fish community, in my mind, is is one of the most music like first communities that I've ever observed certainly more than indie rock. And I feel like sometimes I'm trying to put that forward to people because there's all these negative connotations about being a Fish fan that, that people who aren't in the scene have, that it's just a bunch of stoned hippies who want to just hear really long guitar solos that they don't really care about music. But the thing I will say is that when I go to an indie rock show, a lot of times people aren't paying attention. They're talking, they're looking at their phones, they're, you know, they're just there because it's something to do. Whereas you go to a fish show, for the most part, people are glued to the stage. I mean, I've never been in an arena rock audience or a stadium rock audience where people were that into the band. Because especially when you get into these large venues, it's very easy to get distracted. And usually, if you're in an arena, you're gonna have a fair number of casual fans. Most bands can't sell 15,000 tickets if they don't have 8,000 people who maybe know just one song. Most bands don't have that committed of a fan base, but Fish does. If you get into the place, you love the band. There's very few just drive-by listeners there. For a band that famously and allegedly pisses in their fans' ears, much to the crowd's delight, sometimes it seems like Fish just can't catch a break. Far from accepting ear piss, Fish fans are often their harshest critics. And then for professional music critics like Stephen Hyden, and for music's high-walled castle blogs like Pitchfork, well, Fish has always just kind of been ignored. Our four goofy guys from Vermont present something of a stigma oasis to the mainstream music media. In recent years, however, that's becoming less and less true, as they've gotten harder to ignore and easier to like. Let's check in behind enemy lines as we hear from our mole at Pitchfork, associate editor, Sam Sadomsky. Just things like the billboard charts clearly don't mean anything. The Grammys clearly don't mean anything. Plenty of albums get completely ignored by music publications and still find a huge audience. So really, I think the only way you can measure what a band, like how successful they are is like by the connection people have to them. I mean, Fish is like, People can only like dream of having people that devoted to you. So I think that is something that will be their legacy. Great. Back to our regularly scheduled program. Remember when I said these aren't stories we can necessarily tell the grandkids? For various and sometimes obvious reasons, many of us feel like we can't share our favorite fish memories at, say, Thanksgiving dinner. But in Bella Anastasio's case, all of these stories, hers and ours, involve her dad, Trey. In the audience at a fish show, while they're playing, she's just another fan collecting just another lifetime of memories. While many long-term fish fans feel like they came of age with fish, Isabella was quite literally raised on fish tour. We 
It's I drop everything and my only goal is to get to the next show. When that's the way I'm living life is just get to the next show and nothing else even matters. That's what like the essence of going on tour and what like being on tour feels like to me. But while it might be interesting for fans to hear about Bella's perspective on the road with her dad as she herself came of age, Bella had an aha moment where she became not just a fish kid, but a fish kid, a fan who goes from show to show with her boyfriend for many of the same reasons that we all do. Sometimes I'll connect with fans in the audience and they'll share a story that's meaningful to them or they'll just give me a hug and I've had plenty of really sweet, meaningful moments. I've also had a couple of like moments where like, for instance, I have one memory at the Gorge where they were playing, I can't remember what it is. I would have to look back at the set list from that night, but it was uh, like waiting in the Velvet Sea or Tide Turns or something like that. And uh, some guy right behind us was screaming, shut up with the dad rock and like me and my friends were cracking up because he was right behind me and he was just like cut it out with all this dad rock and we were just like dying because he had no idea who i was and he was screaming that into my ear it was really funny so it's definitely i definitely have a lot of moments where it's like it where it's just totally weird i'm like this is such a unique perspective While Bella's experience at a fish show is unique and probably both a little bit the same and a little bit different than ours, the same can be said for her dad's tour experience. Let's not forget that while we're out on fish tour, traveling from show to show, Trey, Mike, Page, and Fish are doing the same thing, and their way of doing it might be better, or at least a little more finely tuned than ours. They don't have to get to the venue at 6am for load-in, of course. But they do get to the venue probably around the same time that many of us are just arriving on lot as well. So despite the obvious differences, their road schedule isn't always all that different from ours. Let's close out this episode by tossing it back to the other side of the stage with former road manager Brad Sands. Well, like typically there's a couple different things that can happen. One, you stay at the venue like and hang out or you do a runner, you know, which would require going straight from the stage right to the bus and getting out of there right away, like quote unquote beating traffic or getting out of there before the house lights are even up, which, you know, time or time, time or time again could involve a police escort. The police escort is one, is literally always one of the greatest experiences of anyone's life. If you just get one, You've lived, you know, if you get, if you've gotten multiple ones, you've lived a lot. If you're playing somewhere, for example, that's like say two or three hours away, like say you're playing like in Indianapolis at Deer Creek and then you're playing in Chicago the next night. Like you can actually, if you do a runner and get out of there at 11, you get Chicago by tw- by one thirty or two, which means you can get a full night's sleep in bed. You don't like wake up, go in the hotel, you know, and that's like, a, that is kind of actually plays into the thinking. Like if we get out of here, we can get to the next hotel sooner than later. I think in general, like the worst bus rides are like five or six hours, right? Because you get there like five or six in the morning and then you're like, well, I can stay sleeping on the bus, right? Get up and go in. And like, I think, I think a couple like Paige and Trey would always get up and go in. 
I feel like the fish guys mostly would get up and go in like fishmen would be awake anyway. You know, they didn't really stay on the bus too much, but it's that kind of like when you fall asleep for a couple hours and then you wake up and have to go in and deal, you know, then you're just awake in a perfect world. You walk in, they hand you the keys, you walk in, give them to the guys and then they go in and then that's it. But you know, that's why some, sometimes you do get what you pay for with the nicer hotels. Like they kind of have it down because they're used to it. You know, when you're in some of the other ones, they don't really understand like, what do you mean you're getting here at 6am and you're driving a bus and you know, they have no clue. They're like, you know, every now and then you'll advance it and then they'll cancel your rooms because you didn't show up. You know, that, that kind of happened more. It seemed like in the early nineties, you know, when we were driving in vans and stuff, but that's happened a few times. It can be kind of a disaster, but you know, when you're on the road, you have to like, you know, there were certain times where I went into the hotels, probably looking worse than anybody. Like, okay, I need the rooms. And they're like, you know, can we see some ID? (laughs) This can't be them, you know? I remember Fishman had a, he had like a trash bag for his luggage at one point, you know, he's like, (laughs) and like Trey or Paige would be like, there he goes, the billionaire, you know? (laughs) Anyone who has ever been on fish tour has their own stories to tell, and almost all of them contain gold, even if none of them end up with the narrator winning a million dollars. Feel free to reach out to us if you feel like sharing your personal tour stories. We'd love to hear them. In the meantime, thanks for joining us on our exploration of what it's like to be on the open road in the days between. On next week's episode, we'll explore what happens at the venue on show days, long before the first car rolls into the parking lot. Hope you don't mind getting to the arena at 6 a.m. for load-in. Spoiler alert, it's a lot of hard work, but the fish crew does it all for your delight. I'm Tom Marshall, and you're listening to Undermine. So just relax, you're doing fine. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media, the leading music storyteller. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Written by Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Produced by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and Don Jenkins. Production assistance and writing by Noah Eckstein. Original music by Amar Sastry. Show art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all of our interviewees. We'll see you next week. next week on Undermine. And it was actually when Mike was on tour in 2008 and I was seeing a bunch of Radiohead shows at the time and it just so happened that there was a night off before Mike's show in LA and I had some extra tickets in the pool. So I was able to reach out to him, invite him to see Radiohead, took him to the show. It was an incredible experience. However, we were still doing the concert the normal way, which means stack parking. I made him pay for his ticket. He went and got a very expensive, I think it was like a $28 sangria. And he came back to the seat and he's like, boy, concerts are really expensive. And I was like, yeah, yep, they are. But what was amazing was watching him watch the Radiohead fans, because he's used to seeing the Fish fans, so he, he knows that whole scene. 
But to see this whole other group of fans totally losing their mind, we were in the sixth row at the Hollywood Bowl, it's epic scene, Radiohead, epic show, and he just, it, it blew his mind. Osiris. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe Grind podcast.